hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And uh, today I'm continuing on um, one of my solo uh, series here, the Jesus Mythicism Refuted series. And this is going to be part four in the series. So we're picking up uh, from part three where we left off. And just to give you a recap, because I, I'm doing a cumulative case calculations based on all the positive and negative evidences. And so far, uh, we've only covered some of the positive evidences looking at the non-Christian sources. So in part, parts 1a and parts 1b, we covered the ancient non-Christian historians. So that was Josephus, Tacitus, uh, Lucian, uh, sorry, um, Thallus and Phlegon, as well as Suetonius. And we discovered that Josephus and Tacitus were, we were able to establish our case that they probably proved a minimal historical Jesus existed. And after part two, we looked at the other non-Christian pagan sources attesting to the fact that Jesus was a historical figure. We fared a little bit less well here. Only Lucian of Samosota, uh, I thought we could make a case on a balance of probabilities, uh, prove that there was the minimal historical Jesus and that he existed. And then in part three, we looked at four archaeological sources, and of those, two of them I thought were successful on a balance of probabilities. So the Nazareth inscription, which was I evaluated at 65%, proving the minimal historical Jesus existed, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, at 70% proof that probably the minimal historical Jesus existed. So overall, cumulatively so far, based on all the positive evidences which... Um, provided evidence on a balance of probabilities or the preponderance of evidence, we're currently at about 94.85% proven that the minimal historical Jesus existed just based on these evidences alone. Um, obviously, that number is going to change. It could go down when we start factoring in some negative evidences, uh, you know, ev arguments that Jesus mythicists throw up to say that Jesus didn't exist or a minimal historical Jesus didn't exist. Um, and then it could go back up again when we uh, start considering some Christian proofs or evidences. Evidences either extra-biblical Christians, uh, texts, or from the biblical proofs as well. Um, so yeah, but anyways, at the moment, right now, we're at 94.85%. And we're going to continue on in part four here, looking at some more positive evidences specifically from religious Jews or rabbinical texts in, in this part. And I think that, um, you know, this kind of gets a bad rap. Most scholars today at one time, um, you know, 100 years ago or something, or back in the 1800s, a lot of times Christians would just throw these up and say, look, this proves it. They would just kind of say, whatever this the Talmud says, there are so many passages that speak of Jesus. There's at least about... Dr. Michael Lacona quotes Van Ver, the scholar Van Verst, who has at least two dozen, 24 uh, alleged uh, passages in the Talmud about Jesus. And it would just be kind of assumed that, well, these reflected the first century, you know, when, it, when this was written down, this reflected first century historical tradition. And they took it word for word, whatever it says, this is uh, about Jesus and proves he existed. Obviously now, the tide has turned. In terms of mainstream scholarship, the rabbinical texts are very much frowned upon in terms of their reliability. But I'll get into a little, I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, the first thing I want to do, though, is 
let's kind of get understand the layout of the literature. Where where do these quotes about Jesus come from? What what is the Talmud or what are these rabbinical texts that we're going to be looking at? And when they were made, because it can get a little convoluted and be a little bit tricky. So, so let's first of all forget about Jesus quotes. Let's get to know the literature in general. What are we talking about when we're talking about rabbinical texts? Okay, so generally speaking, uh, rabbinics or rabbinical texts um, are based uh, in the field of rabbinics, and this is the study of commentary made by ancient Jewish rabbis on the Old Testament scriptures. Um, even and it also includes within this commentary on the original commentary and it's an ever-growing expansion of commentary on the scriptures and commentary on the commentary of the scriptures and so on and so forth so basically as various rabbis commented on the scriptures or on another rabbi's commentary um, they kind of occasionally referred to people and or events uh, that were at during their time you know going on around their own times obviously one of which we'll be saying is jesus as well jesus is one of these people that's sometimes mentioned or brought up but it's not the main focus of the text the, the main focus of the text isn't historical they're not trying to give a chronological sequence or that sort of thing um their their interest is more providing commentary on the old testament scriptures and providing interpretations of how to read these and that's the main goal of this now, rabbinics is a very complicated field be just because of the sheer bulk of the literature. So this is something that right away we have to get straight in terms of the lay of the land. But here's, here's just a quote from one uh, scholar, R.T. France, um, and he kind of warns us as we dip our, get into these rabbinical texts. He says, look, quote unquote, to search in rabbinic literature for data on any historical subject is a daunting task. The sheer bulk of the literature, its baffling complexity, and to us, its lack of logical structure, its complicated oral and literary history, and the consequent uncertainty about the date of the traditions it preserves, all this makes it an uninviting area for most non-Jewish readers. Add to this the fact that history as such is not its concern, so that tidbits of historical information occur only as illustrations of abstruse legal and theological arguments, often without enough detail to make it clear what historical situation is in view. The task seems hopeless. Uh, he goes on to kind of speak with respect to Jesus in particular, and I'll just quote that quickly. But in the case of evidence for Jesus, we have the further complicating factor that he was, for the rabbis, a heretical teacher and sorcerer, whose name could scarcely be used without defilement, with the result that many scholars believe that they referred to him by pseudonyms, such as Ben Stata or Balaam, or by vague expressions like Mr. So-and-so. So that's a quote by R.T. France, and it just kind of sets the stage that, okay, this, this is a bit of a quagmire, and it's really important to get a conceptual map of how the literature works and that sort of thing. One thing that pops up here that will be important when we talk about reliability is what is the motivation behind the rabbis when they're writing these texts? And it's not primarily historical. You know, they they're very fanciful. Sometimes they make up historical events or they get things out of sequence. They're, 
they're not concerned with history. Their thing is purely legal and theological implications and commentaries on scriptures and how to apply that and how it relates to certain legal cases and that sort of thing. And they're very liberal. Now, one thing that I will mention here um, before we'll bring this up again, but one thing that's just interesting about this quote from France, RT France, is okay, well, that's going to help, that could also help establish the historicity of some of the events or people that are mentioned there because it fulfills what all historians, atheist, agnostic, or Christian, or whatever it is, admit uh, makes it more probable than not to be true, the criterion of disinterest that Bart Ehrman used, for example, right? Or, uh, you know, these off-the-cuff comments, you know, when it mentions Jesus or a historical figure here and there, it's off-the-cuff for them because that's not their interest. They're not trying to prove this guy exists or this event happened. Um, so that is potentially a, a source of reliability, historical reliability with respect to these names. But again, this has to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis and um, seriously considered because there are mitigating factors um, that say, yeah, but sometimes they just make stuff up whole out of whole cloth. So just wanted to give you those two, two aspects there. So great. So let's get into it. The writings of the rabbis. Okay, so it's important to note that, first of all, this started out as purely oral tradition in the centuries. And um, what most will say, most uh, experts in this area will say, is that it started during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, post the Babylonian exile, when they were returning uh, to Jerusalem under Cyrus the Great, and they start, rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. Uh, it says that certain priests and scribes and rabbis or teachers began to comment on the meaning of scriptural Old Testament passages in the law. So, for example, we have Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 7 to 8 that gives the names of various priests and scribes and individuals um, who, along with the Levites, uh, would, quote unquote, read from the book from the law of God, the Torah. Uh, translating it to give the sense so that the people understood the reading. Uh, and then generation after generation, this teaching was memorized from orally and then passed down word from word in an, a supposedly unbroken oral tradition or unbroken chain of oral tradition with each succeeding generation, uh, the interpretation of their own rabbis would be added to this ever-growing oral tradition and more and more would be memorized. Um, so just to read what Nehemiah says, Nehemiah starts off kind of saying in chapter seven verses, uh, chapter eight, verses seven to nine. So he names also jo uh, Jeshua, Beni, Sherbiah, Jemin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, it's important to note that in the biblical book here, Ezra and Nehemiah, their, their main goal is to teach the word of God directly to the people, explain what it means, and then to practice it. Uh, there's a quote later on um, from Nehemiah where he says, or from Ezra, where it says, look, 
the original practice had been to, quote-unquote, set Ezra's heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach God's statutes and ordinances in Israel to the people so they could practice it. Now, this contrasts de- uh, very much so with the what happened in the time of Jesus, where Jesus starts scolding these Pharisees. This is really the beginning at the time of Ezra as these traditions build up. We start getting this Pharisees movement where the traditions become more and more unwieldy and twist and contort so that they actually literally contradict what the actual scriptures or commandments mean, you know, through their gross and satanic interpretations, I would say, Satan-inspired interpretations that actually contradict the the scriptures that they're quoting or, or commenting on. Um, but yeah, we get this in the New Testament all the time with Jesus, where he's kind of saying like, look, it was quote unquote, the tradition of the elders and uh, the interpretations of the law were considered just as authoritative as the written law in the Torah itself. And this prompted Jesus to say, quote unquote, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. You know, so just think about all, this is all orally. Nothing's written down at this, even at this point for supposedly, according to the rabbis, for centuries. And this is all being memorized orally and it's an ever-growing body. And it becomes, you know, there's, they speak again in the New Testament of how burdensome it is. Jesus challenged the scribes saying, quote unquote, you weigh men and students down with burdens uh, hard to bear, while you yourselves as teachers will not even touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. Um, so it just shows the hypocrisy of these Pharisaic and rabbis as they equated their own oral man-made traditions that really started around the, the post-Babylonian era. Uh, and then they forced people to memorize these traditions so much so that they, they couldn't practice the law in, in any way. And the traditions they were learning would contradict what the Old Testament commandments and the law actually said. So you can see how corrupted it became over time as it snowballed. But it's interesting because rabbis today, Jews today, will say that, well, look, it, we contradict. These traditions didn't just start in the ba- post-Babylonian era. It wasn't Ezra and Nehemiah who kind of started explaining the law to the people and started this tradition of having commentaries where people build off of it and then eventually it became corrupted to the status of the law and started contradicting people by the time we got to Jesus' day. They say, no, these oral traditions go all the way back to Moses. Incredible. So on Mount Sinai, God didn't just give Moses the Ten Commandments and the written law that we have in Exodus and stuff. He also got the uh, oral law, the oral Torah at that same time. And that's been transmitted orally ever since from Moses to Joshua, from Joshua to the 70 elders and so on and so forth to up to Ezra. And then, uh, but yeah, rather than me explain that, I have a little clip here, a six minute clip from Dr. Michael L. Brown, uh, a world's expert in this. He, he's going to explain just sort of the Jewish claim uh, for how the this oral tradition supposedly came from Moses all the way unbroken, all the way down to, uh, you know, the rabbinic literatures that we have uh, today. So let me just play that for you guys. We're not talking about the written word. We're talking about an oral tradition. So in Judaism, you have what's called Torah Shebichtav, the written Torah, and then Torah Sheba'al Peh, the oral 
Torah, literally Torah that is on the mouth. Torah Shebichtav and Torah Shebaal Pei. Now, traditional Judaism believes that at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the written law, but that the written law in and of itself is incomprehensible. Don't do work on the Sabbath. Whoever works is put to death, but it doesn't tell us exactly what work is. Or, for example, it, it tells you about building a, a sukkah for tabernacles, uh, building a, a booth, but it doesn't give you exact specifications. It mean, everyone would build whoever they wanted to build. Or even when it says don't steal, what exactly is stealing? And, and, and does it involve kidnapping? There's various things like that. Uh, so Jewish tradition teaches us this, that when Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, that God explained to him the details of the law, just like he gave him a, 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 a tavnit, a pattern for the, the, the building of the tabernacle, so Moses can say, yeah, just build it like this according to the pattern that I saw. That the same way God explained to Moses, this is what Sabbath observance is, this is how you do this, this is how you do this, and then gave Moses principles of interpreting the text that could then be transmitted to each generation, and then they could develop what the text said and understand it based on that, as well as the traditions, and then each new generation, as the laws were being applied, might have to make new decisions. And, and this is how we deal with this, just like we have ethical decisions about, about life support to deal with now that 100 years ago they didn't have to deal with. Various questions about, uh, about when death is that, that people didn't have to deal with hundreds of years ago. Well, the same way Judaism will have different issues about Sabbath observance and dietary laws based on this discovery or this issue or this question that comes up. So every new generation may develop new traditions, but they build on the previous ones. And then, this is what traditional Judaism believes. That Moses received the oral law, the oral Torah, from God on Sinai, and transmitted it to Joshua. Now, not only Joshua, but Joshua is the main transmitter now. Joshua then transmits it to the 70 elders. The 70 elders then transmit it to the prophets. Uh, the prophets then transmit it to the men of the great assembly, on Sheikh Neset HaGdolah. The, the, the men of the, the great assembly. And, and this is in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. They then transmit this, so this is all orally, okay? And I'm not putting in every single link in the chain, but the major uh, players here. They're now passing this out orally to what's called the Zugot. Zugot being pairs of teachers who were prominent in their generation for several centuries leading up to the time of Yeshua, which then ends with the pair of Hillel and Shammai. They then give way to what's called the Tanaim. These are, are the teachers of the tradition who are repeaters. That's what the, the Hebrew would, would mean. And, and they are now begin to codify these things and put them together so that in the, in the early third century, so about 200 years after the time of Yeshua, they finally put some of this in writing in what's called the Mishnah. Why do they put it in writing? Well, the Jews are being scattered. There are difficult times economically, socially, persecution, things like this. There's the growing body of tradition that needs to be put down, lest it be forgotten. What's the more realistic explanation? Well, the traditions didn't exist hundreds and hundreds of years before that. In other words, the traditions of the Mishnah uh, exist primarily after the time of the destruction of the, the Second Temple, and, and maybe at their earliest, a century or two before the time of Yeshua, but they don't go back to Moses. Ah, another way to look at it. Anyway, according to rabbinic thought, the Tanaim 
then are followed by the Amorayim. So the Amorayim are basically from around 200 to around 500. The Amorayim, literally sayers, they are now taking the traditions and tying them back in with scripture and so on. And that yields the Talmuds, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. And the final editors are called the Savarayim, literally the reasoners. They are the final editors of the Babylonian Talmud, roughly uh, five to six hundred years after the time of Yeshua. Okay, so that's part of the quote. He go, And then he goes on from there to explain... Uh, how the tradition oral law was supposedly transmitted to future generations after the the finale of the Babylonian Talmud. We don't need to care about the rest of that stuff. But um, you know, Michael Brown, I've included in my blog the uh, his website as what answering Jewish objections to Jesus and the link to this YouTube video that I was playing here. Um, I encourage you. It's a thirty minute video. Watch that in all because he he goes into great detail. He's one of the best scholars we've got on our side. You know, uh, thank God he's he's a Christian for us, and uh, he gives a total of six arguments. Goes ahead and gives six arguments disproving and falsifying this Jewish notion that there is this oral law that's been transmitted from the time of Moses, perfectly and a hundred percent perfectly memorized and transmitted all the way down from Moses until today. Um, that's pure historical horse trash, and uh, he destroys it um, with six arguments. But I won't give that in this show. This is a show about Jesus' mythicism, and I, I just wanted his little part kind of explaining how the Jews see their uh, oral tradition being transmitted up until the time it starts getting written down and becomes the rabbinic literature culminating with the Babylonian Talmud, which is going to have the passages we're looking at relevant to um, the existence of Jesus. Um, so yeah, I'll end that. Uh, you can take a look at my blog for the, the link to the YouTube if you want to see the rest of that video. Um, but what's interesting here is, so essentially he Michael Brown mentions what's called the Tanaic, Tanaic period. Uh, so this was the period from 70 AD, you see on your YouTube screens, I've got the, the periods there. Uh, from 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem until about 200 AD. So around 200 AD, this is when the Mishnah was finally completed, writing down of this oral tradition and commentary and stuff like that. Essentially, it, Jerusalem and the temple fell in 70 AD by the Romans. And the Pharisees uh, from the school of Hillel, they kind of feared that Israel would lose her traditions and their unity. And, you know, they're starting to be persecuted. Christians are starting to separate themselves from Jews a little bit. This was kind of the impetus for why um, Jews w started writing down these traditions or something like that, or memorizing these oral traditions. Now we need to write it down because things have changed. We're scattered, we're in the diaspora, we're being persecuted and all of this. Um, so this is, uh, with Roman permission, the Jews basically established their headquarters at a place called Jamnia in the Holy Land. Uh, so that's almost directly west of Jerusalem. And uh, it's really close to the Mediterranean coast there. But, um, you know, it was Jamnia. They reformed their Sanhedrin and Yohanan ben Zakai. Uh, he became its new, the new president of the Sanhedrin. During this period kind of thing, they wanted to preserve their traditions. It, Jamnia, you'll recognize it. It's famous for the famous Council of Jamnia in nine, held in around 90 AD. Most scholars will say it was 90 AD. And supposedly um, a lot of skeptics, hyper-skeptics, used to think before the 1960s, it was popular to kind of say, 
this is a proposal by a hyperskeptic Henry uh, Grayitz around 1871. And he said, oh, well, um, at the Council of Jamnia, that's when the Old Testament Tanakh, the scriptures of the Tanakh, were finally codified and canonized. This is the official Old Testament of the Jews. Before that, they didn't have a clue. It's kind of like the same skeptics do to Christians, right? They'll uh, say, oh, it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea that the canon of the New Testament was fixed and appropriate. Of course, the Council of Nicaea has nothing to do with the canon of the New Testament. They're just ignorant. Uh, In fact, it was a later council um, that kind of officialized that. But it's the same with the Old Testament, the Jewish canon. The Jews knew what the canon was well before uh, the Council of Jamnia. Um, this was just more of an official recognition. And But this, uh, this uh, skeptical hypothesis has been completely destroyed and discredited today. You'd be laughed at if you suggested it. Um, you know, so in the 21st century, scholars are... You know, they think this is a, just a joke. But anyways, that's what we're talking about. We're, this Council of Jamnia, Jamnia is what we're talking about, where the Jews came up and started out coming up, writing down or codifying these oral traditions. And um, in the early 2nd century, uh, this is when the world-famous Rabbi Akiba, or otherwise known Rabbi Akiva, was around. He's a famous name. He was the rabbi that uh, was quite foolish in supporting the false messiah, the Bar Kokhba, during the Bar Kokhba rebellion, or the um, Messiah Ben Kosaba, sometimes he's called, right? And in and around 135, the Emperor Hadrian destroyed that fool, that false heretic and messiah, false messiah. Uh, rabbi Akiba was killed as punishment for supporting it. And this uh, led to really uh, the massive shift against the Jews permanently. You know, it became uh, the Roman province of Palestine instead of Judea as punishment. They put the Venus statue on uh, the site of, you know, the various pagan statues um, instead of the Jerusalem temple and all this stuff. So it was really this uh, rebellion destroyed the fortunes of the Jews forever. They, They were always an enemy without any chance of going back after that that second major revolt, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, and Rabbi Akiba or Akiva was uh, fully behind that, quite foolishly, um, in my opinion. But okay, outside of his uh, foolish politics, he also played a major role in the organization of this writing down and codifying the oral tradition into this Mishnah. And what his major contribution was, he organized or arranged some of the written material into different subject matters or different areas of, of, or subjects. Again, because he was tortured to death after the rebellion of the Messiah Ben um, Kokhba or Kosba, um, and that was crushed by the Roman Emperor Hadrian, um, it really fell to Akiba's or Akiva's pupil, Rabbi Mir. This guy is a famous name as well. And it was Rabbi Mir, M-E-I-R, who really revised and then continued the work. And he sort of split up the various Mishnah, or Mishnah just means in Hebrew, teaching, right? So it's you're writing down all of the teachings, this oral teaching, uh, or otherwise in the Hebrew, it could be known as repetition, right? And the material was divided into six sederim, or with each sedir, or subject, or topic, covering all of the teaching on a particular subject matter. So what were these six main subjects? Well, number one was agriculture. Second was feasts. 
Third was women. Fourth was damages. Fifth was hallowed things. And then finally, sixth was cleanness or cleanliness. Uh, so these were the six subjects that they started in, in and around the mid-2nd century, formalizing the material of the Mishnah around these six subjects, or sedars, or sederim in the plural. And then finally, in 200 AD, Rabbi Judah, the patriarch, uh, finished the compilation of all these writings, and he gave us what we now know today as the Mishnah. And this ended the period, the Tanatiac period, um, or the period of the repetition. Yeah, so in terms of the Mishnah, let's get into that. So so the Mishnah has those sedarium, and this, each sedarium, the six sedarium, are divided into smaller sections called tractates. Each tractate is then divided into chapters, and those chapters are divided containing sections. Um, and just to give you an idea, so a section is maybe it's like a, something that's somewhat longer than a Bible verse. Um, so that's how the that's the literature that we got out of this period. And one important uh, kind of distinction within the Mishnah here is there's a parallel thing called midrash that you need to know about that's part of the Mishnah. So the name comes from the verb derash, uh, meaning to seek, to explore, or to interpret. So really the Midrash is more of a running commentary on scripture, whereas Mishnah proper may teach certain interpretations completely independently of the their scriptural basis. Um, so on that front, there are two kinds of Midrash, right? So one is called Halakha, which is more legislative in nature, and then there's Haggadah, which is more inspirational in its approach. Um, so, so yeah, these terms are, are kind of used often to describe the kind of material in the Mishnah as a whole. Um, and when you're referring to the Mishnah as a whole, most of the time it's halakhic or legalistic in nature. But um, yeah, just kind of understand that there is this distinct, further distinctions of how they organize it. Additionally, they produced another document totally separate uh, from the Mishnah. So this included uh, materials of commentary from the Tanaic period, 7200 AD, that was not selected for the Mishnah, and that's called the Tosefta. Uh, and that Tosefta in Hebrew just means addition or supplement. Um, so yeah, the, these teachings really kind of expanded or give parallel versions of sayings that were presented in the Mishnah proper. So it's sort of a secondary book there. But um, yeah, that's it. So that's the period from 70 to 200 AD that culminated in the Tafsera and the Mishnah, um, as well as the Midrash within the Mishnah. And that's that was called the repeaters or the Tanaim period for that material that was codified or written down during that time. Now it's important, obviously during this time, the rabbis aren't just copying down old traditions they're also coming up with their own oral traditions from between 70 to 200 AD as well right these are outside of or external to the Mishnah altogether and these traditions were known as Beritoth Beritoth uh, kind of a weird word or, or in the singular Beritha and these were preserved in what is uh, termed the Gemara uh, so the Gemara is just the commentary on the Mishnah uh, of the Amoraic period. So the Amoraic period is the next period that follows the Tanaic period. So this is between 200 
to 500 AD when we're getting our Talmuds. So during this Amoranic Am uh, period from 200 to 500 AD or from the 3rd to the 6th centuries AD, really the teachers of this period were called Amoraim. Um, and they produced the commentary on the Mishnah known as the Gemara. And uh, Gemara, coming from the root word Gemara, meaning to finish. And there were two schools of thought, uh, two types of schools or two dominant traditions leading up to the Talmud. Um, so by Talmud, uh, this just literally means learning in Hebrew. And basically, so what it is, it's the Mishnah plus the Gemara. That is what the Talmuds are. And there was two schools here. So there was the Palestinian or Jerusalem Talmud. Um, so this basically included the Mishnah from 200 AD that was completed, being written in 200 AD, and included and contained traditions dating back all the way to 70 AD and or possibly uh, up to 200 years before Jesus was born. That's where most scholars are. At, mo at best, there are traditions preserved in it from one to two centuries before Jesus, at best. Um, only Jewish people would say, no, it goes back to Ezra, or even worse, it goes back all the way to Moses and stuff like that. Nobody really believes that unless you've got religious bias as a, as a proponent of Judaism to think that. But the point is here, yeah, so the Jerusalem Talmud includes the Gemara up to about 350 to 425 AD. Then they stopped. and So that's a shorter Talmud. It's a shorter, shorter book. The other center of uh, traditions here were from the, or commentaries on the Mishnah, were in Babylonia. And this is why we get the Babylonian Talmud. And these guys kept going up until 500 AD, recording down traditions and Gemara and that sort of thing, commenting on the Mishnah, up until 500 AD. And this gives us the largest book. It's called the Babylonian Talmud. And this is where a lot of our passages come from that speak of Jesus is in the Babylonian Talmud. So yeah, I, th I think that should give you a good, I, I think that should give you a good idea, uh, a lay of the land, a conceptual map of the datings and how the writings work together, how it kind of corresponded together to get the final text that we're gonna be looking at and looking for passages that might prove the historical Jesus here. But just a couple things by way of assessment in terms of the historical reliability of the Jesus texts within the Babylonian Talmud. 500 AD is quite late. Um, even 350 to 425 for the Palestinian Talmud, that's too late to be. And most even Christians like Josh McDowell or Mike Lacona and Gary Habermas all say, look, the lateness um, of some of these passages about Jesus uh, really rule them out. Uh, so here, here's a couple quotes from, from some scholars here. So famous agnostic biblical scholar, Dr. Bart D. Ehrman, he says this, quote-unquote, in view of the dates of these writings and the compilations of establishing the origins of their traditions, scholars by and large realize that they can no longer, as they once did, simply quote a passage from the Talmud and assume that it reflects conditions in the first century of the common era. Any more than one can quote a modern newspaper editorial and assume that it reflects conditions of colonial America. Yeah, so so that's Bart Ehrman, but he's an agnostic, right? Well, let's quote Dr. Mike Lacona, evangelical Christian Protestant scholar here, and 
what's his kind of take? His is very similar to Bart Ehrman's here. And so he says, quote unquote, in summary, the rabbinic sources were compiled in the 4th and 5th centuries AD and contained a chunk of information written in the 3rd century AD that may have origins in earlier sources of unknown origin and reliability. And we can have no confidence that the rabbinic sources used their 3rd century sources responsibly or that their 3rd century sources used their earlier sources responsibly. Thus, the rabbinic sources probably tell us what educated Jews of the 3rd century and perhaps a little earlier knew or believed about Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Finishing off, he says, I, Dr. Mike Lacona, assigned the rabbinic sources in terms of proving the historical Jesus, the historical Jesus, a rating of unlikely. In other words, Mike Lacona thinks it's improbable that any of these rabbinical texts can prove that Jesus existed or was a real person or crucified or anything like that. So, you know, that's kind of problematic. And this reflects mainstream scholarship. This is kind of the majority opinion. But that said, I I honestly believe, and I'll hope to make the case, that I think that scholar, the mainstream scholarship are kind of overreacting. Even Michael Kona, I think he's wrong a bit here. I think he's being a bit too hasty. And... You know, he kind of doesn't want to get involved in in necessary debates here because ultimately this is in his book on the resurrection of Jesus and he's got he knows he's got better evidence. So why fight this? I think he's kind of giving it to the skeptics. Um, But, you know, we we're not doing that. I want to dive into this because I think that there are at least some passages, at least one or more uh, passages that we can say are reliably dated to the first century and reflect, uh, possibly reflect tradition uh, about Jesus and maybe his trial or something like that. So yeah, we're, we're going to probe, despite these quotes um, representing mainstream scholarship, admittedly, we're going to probe on a little bit deeper than, than just these quotes here. But the case in point is made. Look, these writings in terms of when they were finished being written is late. 500 AD for the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, 350 to 425 AD for the Palestinian Talmud. Um, Even the Mishnah is 200 AD when it was finished. And and that's important to know. Remember, that's when it was finished. It was being written previous to that from 70 AD up to 200 AD, bit by bit was being written down and codified over that period. So just because it was finished being written in 200 AD doesn't mean that there weren't written components that date all the way back to the first century uh, starting in 70 AD, perhaps. And obviously, for our purposes, in terms of our case, we are just going to completely ignore all the later writings in the rabbinical traditions um, for the very purpose, because they're so late. All of the passages referring to Jesus that originated later than the Tanatic time period, we are designating as unreliable and or um, unprovably not provable to be reliable. And therefore, we're going to ignore them from our study. And that's the majority of Jesus' texts here. Uh, There are many such passages, but in the Emmerich period, they they were primarily referring to Jesus in terms of Christian doctrine. There's a notable difference between the Emmerich period, that's the period from 200 to 500 AD, where they're commenting on the Mishnah, commenting on the commentary written down in the Mishnah, 
And here, when they do refer to Jesus, they're talking about a later theological Jesus. They're theologing, they're putting him in theological terms and interacting with advanced Christian doctrine of later periods, not reflective of the first century, uh, let alone, or, or even second century, um, let alone a Jewish understanding of Christian doctrine. So we know that this, this is different from the earlier Tanatic period, from 70 to 200 AD, when the Mishnah was being compiled. They had a much more primitive uh, and straightforward and kind of, uh, Jesus is mentioned strictly in his historical existence as an off-the-cuff comment, disinterested. He just relates to this theological or legalistic point or something like that. Yeah, these passages uh, seem to preserve early testimony. Um, but in terms of the later ones from the Amoric period after 200 AD, we're just not going to even deal with them. We're going to say that we can't prove they're reliable because they're just too late. There are issues in general with the reliability of the rabbinic literature and, and sources and how they use their sources. So there's just no way to prove that any of these later texts are reliable. But any text from the Tanatic time period from 70 to 200 AD maybe there's something there. So that's going to be our source. Any passages referring to Jesus in that period, I want to look at those and assess some of them. Now this leads to another major uh, significant complication, or at least a couple complications, regarding the text of itself. So we looked at the text proper, how it was formed or claimed to have been formed, and when uh, most scholars think that they originated and or were completed or finished. But how was that text preserved over the centuries after 500 AD? And this is where we, we kind of have to admit, in the first place, we only really have a small number of manuscript, handwritten manuscript copies of the ancient Talmud that are extant today. And this is kind of the fault of Christians, fake Christians that were in control and persecuting innocent Jews and telling them to burn uh, their manuscripts, saying they can't make their manuscripts and we would destroy a lot of their Talmuds by fire and that sort of thing. And in light of these persecutions, there's a second complication with the Talmud and Jewish writing, rabbinical writings of this period. And that's because, well, the Jewish communities engaged in censorship uh, on themselves, self-censorship, in order to remove references to Jesus or hide it, putting pseudonyms, uh, so, you know, sometimes it's not like it says, oh, I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth that the Christians believe in. It'll go by a pseudonym and we have to figure out, well, is this Jesus or not? It's an added layer of complication because Christians were persecuting Jews um, in the Renaissance period and beyond and that sort of thing. And in order to prevent themselves from being under attack by Christians, Jews would just, okay, this passage is talking about Jesus. Let's just remove it. Uh, in the words of uh, Dr. Morris Goldstein, he was a professor of Old and New Testament literature at the Pacific School of Religion. And he, sa he says this regarding these censorship issues and persecution, quote unquote, Thus, in 1631, the Jewish Assembly of Elders in Poland declared, quote unquote, We enjoin you under the threat of the great ban to publish in no new edition of the Mishnah or the Gemara, Anything that re refers to Jesus of Nazareth, if you will not diligently heed this letter, but run counter thereto, 
and continue to publish our books in the same manner as heretofore, you might bring over us and yourselves still greater sufferings than in previous times. It's important. At first, uh, when the Jews deleted the portions of the words that were printed in the Talmuds referring to Jesus and stuff, these were indicate these deletions were indicated by small circles or blank spaces. So at least you knew, hey, we were supposed to talk about Jesus here, but now we deleted it so that we don't get persecuted to save our own rumps, basically. But then uh, even this later on, this kind of distorted the rabbinic literature. Um, and over time, even this was taken away and uh, they stopped leaving. They were ordered to stop leaving even these spaces or indications that, hey, there's a passage here missing about Jesus. So we even lost that in a lot of our printed um, copies of the text, copies that were invented after the invention of the printing press and that sort of thing. So that's a major problem with a lot of the published versions of the text of the Talmud that we have today. Now, obviously, we do have a few manuscripts of the Talmud that have survived extant today from before the invention of printing and the printing press, uh, as well as many fragments of it. And these are particularly important because they do contain material that's censored out of the printed editions of the Talmud, later printed editions, most of which concern Jesus. But really, uh, it comes down to the Munich Talmud manuscript. Uh, that's the earliest full uncensored manuscript of the Talmud, penned in 1343 AD. And that's really the source, because it has all of those Jesus passages in there. Obviously, there, uh, there are some Christian printers, uh, like Daniel Bomberg, who's responsible for some other extant manuscripts or printings of, of the Talmud and Jewish writings. Particularly, he was in Venice in the early 1500s, and he kind of spent most of his professional life and his family fortune creating 230 major Jewish works and printing those, including the Jerusalem Talmud, and massive editions of the Babylonian Talmud and the Mikrot Gedolot, which is the rabbinic Bible, um, you know, with their surrounding commentaries and stuff like that. Um, he was around in the 1400s during the Renaissance, High Renaissance period and that sort of thing. And he kind of set sort of the standard in 1520 when he printed the first full printed Talmud. That sort of set out the page layout uh, that became the standard for all Talmuds today that we use. So... These are, are kind of what we're we're looking at. Again, it, it's all, the vast majority of what's been uh, of what uh, was there has been destroyed because of Christian persecution. Um, but we do have uh, certain things, and these earlier things that have survived do show us the censorship. You know, we have editions that uh, have those blocked out versions from people like Bomberg. Certain things are blocked out of his. Uh, he so he even he had to censor his sort of thing and his uh, Jewish works printed in 1518 and that sort of thing um, because he had to get the endorsement of Pope Leo the X. Uh, but we also have some of which this Munich manuscript is the most important because that is the full Babylonian Talmud in all of its glory with all of the censored passages in there before the persecution forced them to start censoring what they had and this is where a lot a lot of us go to kind of find out what does the Talmud say about Jesus these very early medieval manuscripts before the uh, censorship in the 15th century and 
in Spain and that sort of thing before the Jewish councils ratified the decision and told their people to stop stop doing that. So yeah, the, the Munich Talmud is really the only uncensored copy of the whole entire Talmud. And even this does have some censorship in it in some respects as well. But yeah, the name of Jesus and other words are, are frequently very faint. So in the Munich manuscript, you can see that they tried to erase Jesus's name as Yeshu HaNatsri, which is Jesus of Nazareth in the Hebrew. Um, they've been partially erased, but you know, thanks to scientific uh, technology, we're able to fully restore and reconstruct um, all of these lost or partially erased words just by examination of the manuscript. Um, so we've been able to reconstruct uh, the entire thing here. And it's important to note that all of the censored passages are almost all late anti-Christian polemics. That's, that's what was censored out of these manuscripts from what we can tell in these earlier drafts or earliest extant manuscripts that we have. The name of Jesus does not always occur in the censored passages though. So some refer to Ben Stada uh, or Ben Pandira. Um, but there is good evidence that these are pseudonyms for Jesus. So that's not in doubt, really, with these passages. So in the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 67a, for example, both of these names are used for the same person, who then is described as the hung-on-the-eve Passover text, which uses the same phrase, Yeshuha Natsri. And then also in the Tosfeta, Tosfeta, so that's, remember, the additional books from the period in the Tenetic period, 70 to 200 AD. That refers to Yeshu ben Pandira, uh, and that's a story about a follower. Uh, we'll find out in, in a little bit more. A follower named Jacob of Jesus, supposedly, that one of these Jewish rabbis met and spoke with, uh, talking about Jesus and Christians and how they were heretics and stuff like that. But yeah, in terms of the, the question about reliability of the preservation of the text, there's no doubt. All scholars agree that this text has been faithfully preserved. Uh, so we are having, looking at the Talmud, you know, with these manuscripts in 1343 and, and that sort of thing, we're seeing the Talmud as it was printed and completed in the year 500 AD, or the Mishnah in 200 AD, or, and, that, and the Jerusalem Talmud as of... 425 or 350 AD and that sort of thing. Nobody doubts that there's been serious corruption. Um, and this is because we know that the Jews uh, were faithful in terms of preserving the Talmud and their rabbinic literature. In terms of how they edited the literature, the common pattern of editing, editing in rabbinic traditions is just to expand the text. You never take away stuff. They they always leave the original words unaltered. And even when we have later in the Gemara, the commentary on the Mishnah or commentary on the commentaries in later periods, they always quote word for word the, the passage from the Mishnah, even when it's uh, not relevant to the point that they want to make. You know, they just want to quote one sentence or one important little bit, but then they qu always quote it in full and then they have to comment on it on even the irrelevant stuff and that sort of thing. So it's it's always expansive, always more is better. They, they don't like taking away unless they're forced to by persecution, as we saw with the Jesus passages. But yeah, they, in terms of what they do naturally, it's always no, it, more is better. We will add words or something if there's a if there's an issue here. We'll we'll expand the text and always leave the original words as we have them, as as they as we find them basically. So, 
So yeah, the rabbinic editors were generally proven to be conservative with traditions from the past. They rarely changed wording, even when they did not understand the vocabulary. They tended to add words to the end of an inherited tradition rather than take away words that they didn't understand or that sort of thing. Sometimes they did um, interrupted a tradition by inserting explanatory phrases, again, adding words to it. Uh, so they kind of interrupted the original quote and said, oh, and by the way, I think this means this, and then went back to quoting, but never did they take away words. So yeah, um, basically all scholars agree today, rabbinical scholars and atheist, skeptic, Christian, Jewish, whatever you are, we all agree the text has been preserved uh, properly as it was originally written. So it basically comes down to, okay, great, we've in terms of assessing the reliability, we've got these written sources. Uh, we're focusing specifically on the written sources from the Tanatic period, from 70 AD to 200 AD when they were written. So let's get into kind of evaluating what do these texts that refer to Jesus say from this period, and are they reliable? Do they preserve reliable oral tradition or tradition from the first century that could prove a minimal historical Jesus existed? Uh, Let's get into that uh, next. Okay, so the first thing to mention here is in with respect to the fact that uh, most scholars think that the rabbis were unreliable uh, at times, and this is provably so sometimes, um, in terms of evaluating their sources and what they incorporated into. On the other hand, we saw that they were deeply conservative in terms of wanting to preserve accurately the words, the whole, all of the words of the rabbis once it was done. Um, so ultimately, it, it rests on, okay, well, how reliable were they during the Tanatic period? Um, and as well, what about during the, in terms of the oral tradition? How faithful were they? And again, these were the Pharisaic tradition. They were very zealous, as Paul tells us, for the traditions of their ancestors. So there is this juxtaposition. I don't think we can just, oh, assume that they were just willy-nilly with their tradition. But at the same time, um, there is the argument of the scholars showing that, yeah, they, they get details massively wrong about Jesus, as we'll see in a second. And bear in mind, at the time, uh, back in Jesus' day, the rabbis during the Second Temple period were not really prone to mentioning events and people of this period unless they were highly relevant to a scripture or a commentary being expounded. So their interest wasn't historical accuracy. This wasn't the focus um, of what the rabbis were talking about up until including the Tanatic period. The, just to quote here, the noted Jewish scholar Joseph Klosner, who's not a Christian, uh, and he's primarily writing to Jewish people here, he says, look, quote unquote, the Talmud authorities, on the whole, rarely refer to the events of the period of the Second Temple, and do so only when the events are relevant to some halakhic discussion, a legalistic discussion, or else they mention them quite casually, so that's a criterion of disinterest, perhaps, off the cuff, in the course of some Haggadah. What, for example, should have been, should have known of the should we have known of the great Maccabean struggle against the kings of Syria if the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees and the Greek writings of Josephus had not survived? 
and we had been compelled to derive all of our information about this great event in the history of Israel from the Talmud alone. Well, uh, Klasner uh, says, quote unquote, we should not have known even the very name of Judas Maccabeus. So yeah, it's, it's very noteworthy here that Jesus is mentioned so many times um, in the first place, because that's not, they don't even mention Judas Maccabeus, one of the, f the founders of the Maccabean revolt and the Hasmonean dynasty um, that was pivotal. I mean, Hanukkah was invented at that time. And yet the rabbis don't even mention his name, for example. Um, so it just, it shows you, look again, historical interest is, isn't what their, uh, their main aim is in these texts. And or the, it's not the interests of the rabbis during the period of the oral history being formed. Uh, that's not what they're. That's not what they're about. Secondly, in terms of Jesus in particular, he at the time in the Tanatic period, as well uh, from the oral period during Jesus from thirty to seventy A.D., and in the period from when it was being written down in the Tanatic period from seventy to two hundred A.D. Jesus, uh, due to Roman oppression over the Jewish nation, uh, Jesus was relatively unimportant as a historical figure to the rabbis during this time. Unlike in later periods in the Amoranic period, 200 to 500 AD, where the really, rabbis are really having to grapple with Christian, Christianity becoming a force to be seen and they're interacting with advanced theological doctrines d derived from the Christ early Christian church fathers and that comes from the Gospels and the Bible and, and stuff like that. So again, quoting uh, Jewish scholar Dr. Joseph Klasner on this front, he says, look, quote-unquote, the appearance of Jesus during the period of disturbance and confusion which befell Judea under the Herods and the Roman procurators was so inconspicuous an event that the contemporaries of Jesus and of his first disciples hardly noticed it. By the time that Christianity had become a great and powerful sect, the sages of the Talmud were already far removed from the time of Jesus. Uh, so these are some interesting things. You know, Jesus was such a nothing to them. Um, why are there so? Why are there uh, multiple quotes about Jesus from this period? Uh, but on the other hand, when they are mentioned, there is a marked difference um, in that. They're not theo theolo going into advanced theological Christian doctrines about Jesus and that sort of thing. They're interacting. They just bring him up off the cuff. Jesus, this historical figure. So this is kind of the contrast that I wanted you guys to, to see here in terms of the rabbinical writings. But just to kind of uh, lay this out more clearly, it might help to actually get into some specific examples. And on the first front, I, I want to provide a few examples, um, that passages talking about Jesus from these early texts that everyone admits, whether you're Christian, uh, atheist, agnostic, everyone pretty much admits, these are known to be unreliable uh, traditions or passages about Jesus. They, they do not prove a minimal historical Jesus. And you know, this will be helpful for comparing contrast purposes, perhaps. So, so let me get into a few passages uh, that are known to be unreliable, and that's uncontroversial. Everyone admits that they're not historically accurate. Our first unreliable text is uh, known as a Ben Stada reference text. So Ben Stada is allegedly one of the pseudonyms, named, uh, names for Jesus, that the rabbis gave to him. And... 
Our text here comes from the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Shabbath 104b. And here's what that text says. Let me just read it word for word. He who cuts upon his flesh, it is a Beretha tradition. Remember Beretha tradition. Uh, Beretha was the, uh, during the Tanatic period when they were writing down the Mishnah, they also had, rabbis were also coming up with their external traditions during that time from 70 to 200 AD. And then that later became incorporated into the, during the Amarnarek period, 200 to 500 AD, that was incorporated into the Gemara for the Talmud. So this is late. This is unreliable. It's during the unreliable period, the Amaraic period. But anyways, so this Baratha tradition says, Rabbi Eliezer said to the sages, did not Ben Stada bring sorcery from Egypt in a cut upon his flesh? They answered him, he was a madman and we do not adduce proof from mad persons. Ben Stada? He was Ben Pandera. Variant spellings of his name include Pantera, Pantera, Panthera, Pantiri, and Pantaturi. Rabbi Hista said, The husband was Stada, the lover Pandera. Was not the husband Papos ben Yehuda, his mother Stada? His mother was Miriam, a woman's hairdresser, as they say in Pabaditha, Stath da, this one strayed from her husband. So that's the quote that we're looking at here. Uh, supposedly, Jesus is Ben Strada, or Ben Stada, sorry. And it talks about his mom, Miriam. Um, and uh, so Jesus is uh, ben, ben Stada, son of the woman, Miriam, who strayed from her husband and uh, was either cheating on in adultery or was raped by a Roman soldier named Pantera or something that's kind of the normal story that we I hear in pop culture a lot. Uh, so this is ta directly tackling the virgin birth and refuting that, trying to come up with a naturalistic, skeptical interpretation of that um, event there, right? Okay, so what do we make of this by way of assessment then? So in the first place, in terms of dating, obviously it was only written down, it was a Beretha. So that means it was written down in the Amoric period, after 200, sometime between 200 and 500 AD, very late, very unreliable. We just automatically dismiss them. Um, however, remember it's a Beretha. That means so that means that the tradition itself, orally, was created between seventy and two hundred A.D. So it could be very, could be relatively early in terms of what the Gemara is handing down here. The oral tradition itself dates to the Tanakhic period. But as to when it dates from, again, we have no idea. There's no chronological dating system. There's no means to be able to figure this out on that front. But anyways, based on internal evidence alone, we know that this is unreliable and a fake. Because in the first place, the Tanim never identifies Ben Stada with Jesus or Pandera. And scholars have concluded that Rab uh, Hista and other Amarim confused the Egyptian, or Ben Stada, from Acts the Apostles chapter 21 verse 38, with Jesus. So they conflated these two and got them mixed up. And in fact, um, even uh, Rabbeinu Tam in uh, the Babylonian Talmud Shabbat 104b in the same book, he declared specifically that this Ben Stada was not Jesus of Nazareth. 
So, so this is referring to the event in Acts 21.38, where the Roman commander says to the Apostle Paul, So then you are not the Egyptian, who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. And Josephus dates, uh, dates this, says that this Egyptian arose just after the governor Felix was made procurator in Judea in 52 AD. So this is what Josephus says. Moreover, there came out of Egypt about this time to Jerusalem, one that said he was a prophet and advised the multitude of the common people to go along with him to the Mount of Olives, as it was called, which lay over against the city. And at the distance of five furlongs, he said further that he would show them from hence how at his command the walls of Jerusalem would fall down. And he promised them that he would procure them an entrance into the city through those walls when they were fallen down. Now when Felix was informed of these things, he ordered his soldiers to take their weapons and came against them with a great number of horsemen and footmen from Jerusalem and attacked the Egyptian and the people that were with him. He also slew 400 of them and took 200 alive. But the Egyptian himself escaped out of the, the fight, but he did not but he did not appear any more. So this is quite clearly about the Egyptian that they're talking about here. It's not about Jesus. Even rabbis in earlier passages themselves admitted this is not about Jesus. So this later rabbi in the Amoric period, uh, he screwed up. Uh, he conflated the Egyptian and Jesus by mistake. Even uh, Joseph Klausner, again, shows that the unreliable nature of the Amorim may be seen in the above text in that, one, they confuse Papas ben Yehuda who is a contemporary of Rabbi Akiba, or Rabbi Akiva in 135 AD, just before he was killed, the mother of Jesus by calling Jesus' mother a woman's hairdresser, in Hebrew, Magdala Nasha. So they confuse Mary Magdalene with Mary, Jesus' mother. And three, they equate Stada with Stathda, which means gone astray. So they get, they get the word wrong there. And they apply the name to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So yeah, so since none of the Tanatic passages proper, you know, all of the passages written down between 70 and 200 AD, none of them equate Ben Stada with Jesus, nor with the name Ben Pandera or Pantera. So in that, that's the reason why most scholars say that this Amorite passage is just totally unreliable. And none of the Ben Stada passages can be said to be reliable uh, historically in terms of establishing a minimal historical Jesus. So on that front, we, we totally dismiss these Ben Stada passage, passages that uh, are allegedly linked to Jesus. They're all fake. They're all wrong. And they're late traditions that have no bearing on earlier passages. Even the Talmud itself in other prior passages says... This is not Jesus. This is about the Egyptian in Acts 21, or that Josephus refers to. So just a couple uh, quick points to mention. So in, in terms of dating, there is some internal evidence here, actually, in terms of the dating. So in the first place, the Mishnah, in the first place, the Mishnah, right? It, it's um, written down 70 to 280, but it's recording traditions from earlier, you know, it was one to two centuries before Jesus up until the 70 AD. Then the then they start writing down these traditions, um, and during 70 to 200 AD, they're coming up with Baratha, new oral traditions. So minimally, it has to date to 70 AD or later, um, so already that's 
it's could be close if it's in the first century but we also know it dates itself because it speaks of a contemporary of rabbi akiba so it's got a date to 135 ad or later it's sometime in the mid to late second century probably when this um, beretha was created by this rabbi um, so that's very late and there's no and because we know he's unreliable getting mixing up details and that sort of thing and confusing the Egyptian, um, it, it shows that he didn't treat his sources properly, his oral sources properly. However, on the positive side, it does get some details right. It is, it is referring to a mid-first century uh, event that happened in this Beretha, right? Um in 52 AD, the Egyptian did revolt and that sort of thing. And it's recorded in Josephus. It's recorded in the New Testament. So we know that this event happened historically. And it is referencing a historical event. Sure, it gets it mixed, he gets it mixed up and screws up various details and throws in Jesus to throw Jesus under the bus and his mom and call her a, uh, one who strayed from her husband. Shame on that ancient rabbi you should be ashamed of himself and and that for saying such a slander against her like that but uh nonetheless there there is evidence of historical kernels from the first century being preserved in these testimonies even by later rabbis so so that's something that might help us in our assessment when we look at some of the reliable things there are kernels or historical kernels or cores that perhaps are getting preserved even though they were written down in a later period, oral tradition has preserved some, at least some material from the first century. So that's a positive note that we get from this unreliable passage here. Are there historical cores in other Jesus passages related to Jesus specifically rather than the Egyptian or something like that? We'll have to wait and see, but at least it's, a pl it's plausible that it could be now based on we've seen the tradition about the Egyptians being preserved from the mid-first century AD into the later period. Another major source here is called the Toledoth Yeshu. Uh, that was mentioned uh, in my show with Dr. David Instone Brewer, for example. Now, Toledoth Yeshu means life of Jesus. This is essentially a booklet which pretends to narrate the entire story of Jesus. Um, and... Most scholars say it was put together as early as the 5th century AD, sometime in the 400s AD. It was definitely after the Roman Empire had converted to Christianity and that sort of thing. Um, it's just totally unreliable. There's no authentic tradition dating back to the Tanatic period at all in this. And for the most part, it's just interacting with the gospel stories and perverting them um, in a satanic way to cut up Jesus. But uh, yeah, so here are some details. So the story speaks of Jesus, an illegitimate and impudent child, learning, quote-unquote, the ineffable name of God in the temple. Uh, he wrote that ineffable name on a slip of paper, which he then sews into the flesh of his thighs. Um, and through doing this, he's able to perform many miracles. Uh, he attracts a following. And the sages of Israel, in response to Jesus gathering this following through miracles by cheating, uh, by taking God's ineffable name and sewing it into his thigh, literally, um, they got a guy named Yehuda Israel Kirioto. Butchered that name, but there it is. Uh, they got this guy, 
he was one of their own, uh, to learn the ineffable name, which he does, just like Jesus did. And then he comes directly against Jesus with signs and wonders. And this includes a battle in the sky where they float up into the sky and uh, Yehuda flies higher than Jesus. He's better than Jesus. So therefore he defiles Jesus and that causes Jesus to fall to the earth. You know, there, there's just so many wild legends and adventures in this thing. Completely ridiculous. You're an absolute fool if you believe there's any truth or historical accuracy to this. It's just a hit piece on Jesus by these Jews, these rabbis. But suffice it to say, eventually Jesus gets arrested. He's hanged on the tree on the eve of Passover, as other passages we're going to find talk about Jesus. But this time, he's not crucified on a, a crucifix. He's crucified on a cabbage stem. <laughs> uh, right, rabbis, right. But, um, you know, so, yeah, and then it goes into the empty story. After his body's buried, a gardener removes Jesus' body. He throws it into a water channel. The disciples, they come and see that Jesus' body's missing, and they begin to proclaim the resurrection. Then eventually a guy named Rabbi Tenachuma who in actually actual history lived 400 years after Jesus' time, he finds the body and reveals the hoax, and the disciples flee and then take their false religion all over the world. Uh, Peter ends up living in a tower built just for him, namely by this tower they call, it's the Church of St. Peter in Rome, which didn't exist until the time of Constantine or later, where he composes hymns and that sort of thing. So this is complete rubbish. You're an absolute fool if you think that this has any bearing on the historical Jesus. Um, again, quoting Jewish scholars, non-Christian Jewish scholars, they say in their evaluation of it, quote-unquote, the most superficial reading of this book serves to prove that we have nothing beyond a piece of folklore in which we are confusedly woven early and late Talmudic and Midrashic legends and sayings concerning Jesus together with gospel accounts which the author of the Toldoth perverts in a fashion derogatory to Jesus. Uh, we also have other popular legends, many of which are mentioned by Celsus and Tertullian earlier, and later church fathers as well. Uh, Samuel Krauss labels a quote-unquote folklorish liste motive, the motive of just creating folklore to make Jesus look bad. And it's it's noticeable because the attitude of the of these pathetic rabbis that invented this it it doesn't really deny anything in the gospel accounts it just takes them for granted but it just tries to change everything done there from good to evil and the evil stuff to good and you know this transverse values that we see with the atheistic marxists and sjw's today these rabbis were the sjw's of their day taking the goodness that we find of jesus in the gospels and perverting it and subverting it to make it seem like it was bad it, this is just rubbish so the intrinsic evidence in terms of dating we know for a fact it's the 400s a.d at the earliest it interacts with uh you know gospel accounts and that and perverts them and doesn't respect its material relies on uh, legends and folklores to basically make Jesus look bad and has highly implausible, ridiculous things. Even if you are believe in the supernatural, they're totally ridiculous. And we know for a scientifically proven fact they did not happen, or a historically proven fact, I should say, because they contradict the Gospels. Therefore, they're wrong. The Gospels are the best source. Every scholar with a PhD admits 
that's what happened. The Gospels record, more or less, are reliable in recording what happened with Jesus and his story. This is uh, garbage. Throw it in the garbage. It, it's rubbish, basically. So, yeah, uh, so much for that. Um, that one was easy. Let, let's move on to a third text. I think there's an, a third unreliable text. And the reason for its being unreliable can prove instructive as to how scholars differentiate potential reliable traditions from unreliable. So I want to go over this for compare and contrast purposes. So this is going to be uh, references to Balaam. Okay, so there are several passages that refer to Jesus by using the name Balaam, allegedly. And the at one point, the references to Jesus as Balaam became so accepted among Jewish scholars um, as it was just no longer beyond question, um, it didn't require any proof. It was just automatically assumed in Jewish scholarship that you see the word Balaam, that's Jesus. Obviously, today in the 21st century, the opposite is the case. And in fact, they've been totally discredited um, upon more careful, critical scholarship. Um, so let's take a look. Some these passages come from the Mishnah, perfect. During the Tanaic period, 70 to 200 AD, they were written down and they reflect traditions going back to the first century and perhaps 200 years before Jesus. So what does the passage say? Quote, unquote, three kings and four commoners have no part in the world to come. Three kings are Jeroboam, Ahab, and Manasseh. Four commoners are Balaam, a.k.a. Jesus, supposedly, Doeg, Antiphoel, and Gehazi. The disciples of Balaam, the wicked, shall inherit Gehenna and go down to the pit of destruction. As it is said, men of blood and deceit shall not live out half their days. So these are the some of the Balaam texts that are supposedly about Jesus here. In the first place, the main problem is, look, there's just no reason from the text to equate Balaam with Jesus in these passages at all. Uh, just from reading this, you know, there is no reason for the compilers of the Mishnah to conceal Jesus' identity. Why are they calling him Balaam during the time of the Mishnah? They weren't under pressure to conceal or censor their comments about Jesus in a derogatory way. So it doesn't make sense that they would call him Balaam here. They had no motivation. Unlike in later centuries, during the Ammonaic period and later on in the medieval period, they did have that kind of motivation to avoid persecution. Secondly, whenever the rabbis did wish to conceal Jesus' identity in later periods, they always used the term such and such or such a one. Thirdly, another problem here is that Blom is not said to be an Israelite, and Jesus was definitely a Jew. He was an Israelite. So obviously Blom is not Jesus. So so yeah, but Blom is, even if it's a cover name, it can apply to all measure of people, but it's not an Israelite Jesus. Now, here's the most devastating uh, critique and why almost all bi biblical or rabbinic or Jewish scholars today all admit Balaam is not Jesus in these texts, and this is primarily due to the simple fact that we have multiple passages um, in the Mishnah referring to Balaam and Jesus as separate individuals at the same time, in the same passage. So, for example, here's um, a passage. There's a passage by Rabbi Eliezer Ha Kapper who died in around 260 A.D. His statements show that um, Jesus was shown to be different than Balaam. Here's an even clearer passage from the Babylonian Talmud, uh, written during the Amoraic period. So here's the quote here. So the story is told of Onkelos, son of Kaliamos, son of Titus' sister. 
that he wished to become a proselyte, he first called up Titus by means of spells. Titus advised him not to become a proselyte because Israel had so many commandments and commandments hard to observe. Rather, would he devise him to oppose them? Ankelos then called up Balaam, who said to him in his rage against Israel, Seek not their peace nor their good. Not till then did he go and raise up Jesus of Nazareth by spells and say to him, What is the most important thing in the world? He said to him, Israel. He asked, And how if I should join myself with them? He said to him, Seek their good and do not seek their harm. Everyone that hurteth them as if he hurt the apple of God's eye. He then asked, And what is the fate of that man? He said to him, Boiling filth. So that's the quote there. As you can see, this guy, Onkelos, he raises up Balaam as a separate individual and then doesn't get what he wants, and then he raises up Jesus of Nazareth. Balaam and Jesus are separate individuals raised up, and they said different things. So it's quite obvious that the uh, Talmud here and the Mishnah doesn't view Balaam as being Jesus. So this was just hasty, faulty scholarship and just wanting to equate Jesus with Balaam. Uh, by later Jewish and Christian scholars, but it's been proven to be unreliable. None, no scholar today believes that these passages are about Jesus, or virtually none. Okay, with that said, let's turn our attention to some possible reliable ones. We've kind of got a sense of what some of the unreliable texts are and the reasons why scholars reject them. What about on the other side now? Let's look at some of the texts that are possibly reliable. Take a, take a look and see what they might say about Jesus and give them an assessment in terms of their value uh, with respect to proving that there was, in fact, a minimal historical Jesus. Okay, so one such text is uh, known as the healing in the name of Yeshua ben Pentera. So there's that Pentera name again in another passage. And it says this, It happened with Rabbi Elizar ben Dama, whom a serpent bit, that Jacob, a man of Kephar Soma, came to heal him in the name of Yeshua ben Pantera. But Rabbi Ishmael did not let him. He said, you are not permitted, ben Dama. Ben Dama answered, I will bring you proof that he may heal me. Speaking of Je supposedly Jesus, Yeshua ben Pantera here. But he had no opportunity to bring proof because he died. Whereupon Rabbi Ishmael said, happy art thou, ben Dama. For you have gone in peace, and you have not broken down the fence of the sages. Since everyone who breaks down the fence of the sages, to him punishment will ultimately come, as it is in Scripture. Whoso breaketh through a fence, a serpent shall bite him. And other similar passages supposedly refer to Jesus as Ben Pantera, as we kind of mentioned in the provable unreliable one. So this one is potentially reliable, and scholars have kind of debated at length how Jesus came to have this name attached to his. Um, so uh, Strauss, for example, Strauss, for example, thought it was from the Greek word uh, pithiros, meaning son-in-law. Um, however, more credible Jewish scholars like Joseph Klasner or F.F. F. Bruce accept the position that Panthera is a corruption of the Greek Parthenos, meaning virgin. Uh, as Klausner says, again, non-Christian scholar Klausner, quote-unquote, the Jews constantly heard that the Christians, the majority of whom speak spoke Greek from the earliest times, called Jesus by the name Son of the Virgin. 
and so in mockery they called him Ben Ha Pantera, or Son of the Leopard. Uh, so this is uh, one of the mainstream interpretations that you hear a lot of Christian apologists giving. However, there's uh, other more radical, skeptical uh, hypotheses. For, for example, one of the most sensational theories about this passage uh, that's not really accepted by serious scholars, but you know, mythicists aren't really serious scholars. They might uh, give something like this, and they'll say, look, in, in what happened, there was a first century tombstone that was discovered um, in uh, Bingerbrook, Germany, and there was an inscription on, the, on it that read, quote-unquote, Tiberius Julius Abedinus Pantera, an archer native of Sidon, Phoenicia, who in 9 AD was transferred to service in Germany. So this discovery kind of fueled these hyper-radical skeptics to come up with a theory that, oh, well, Jesus was the illegitimate son of Mary and this Roman soldier. Um, you know, you would have heard heard this all the time from internet atheists and stuff like that. And um, in defense of this theory, even, even the early Christian church father Origen writes that his opponent Celsus in about 178 AD said that he heard from a Jew that Miriam had become pregnant by uh, Pantheris, who was a Roman soldier, and uh, she was divorced by her husband and bore Jesus in secret. So, yeah, these are some of the interpretations of this verse here. Now, obviously, in terms of this last hyper-skeptical rant, um, obviously it's complete rubbish. I mean, if, if Pantheris were a unique name then the theory of Mary's pregnancy by the Roman soldier might be more attractive to actual scholars today. But, um, you know, as Dr. Adolf Diesmann, uh, who was an early 20th century German New Testament scholar, verified uh, through actual archaeological first century inscriptions, we have absolute certainty that the name Panthera was not an invention of Jewish scoffers of Christianity. It was more a widespread name among the ancients. This was just a common name. So based on this, yeah, Rabbi and Professor Morris Goldstein comments that it was common that it was as common as names like Wolf or Fox are today. Now he does admit, um, Goldstein does admit that it is noteworthy that Origen himself is credited with the tradition that Panther was the appellation of James, uh, or meaning Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, and Joseph being the father of Jesus of the New Testament. As was this name, also the father of Andrew of Crete, John of Damascus, Epiphanes the monk, and the author of Andronicus of Constantinople's Dialogue Against the Jews. So, uh, it could be that this is just preserving the tradition. Another interpretation is that this is historical and it's just preserving, well, Jesus' granddaddy, his name, Pantera. And then Jesus is being associated with his grandfather's name. Um, and this does have precedence in the Talmud. Jews definitely did this. They would use aliases based on your grandfather's name all the time. This, if this interpretation is correct, then this would support, be supported as being possibly preserving reliable historical practice. Because in the first place, Christian tradition is really to identify Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. It's to his hometown. Whereas Jewish tradition more puts greater concern and stress on genealogical identification. So this perhaps suggests that there's independent tradition here, multiple independent uh, tradition that's going on. He's not deriving this from Christian hearsay or from 
the Gospels or anything like that. And instead, they're using the Jewish, this is a purely Jewish-invented myth or story about Jesus, if it's historically accurate. An additional consideration here is the dating. So this passage indicates what's, what's the motivation behind this passage and what the rabbis are doing here. They're saying, well, look, teaching and healing were a part of the ministry of this Yeshua Jesus, Yeshua ben Pentera, um, and therefore of Jesus' ministry as well. But what's the controversy that the rabbis are giving here? They're not disputing whether Jesus existed as a historical figure or even if he did miracles. What the controversy between the rabbis here is that whether or not healing in Jesus' name might be permissible or not. Now think about that. Why would that be a controversy? This speaks to early dating, perhaps. Definitely, uh, at the very most, um, the episode probably occurs in the early 2nd century at the latest, prior to 135 AD, because um, between 70 and 135 AD, Jews and Christians are separating uh, from each other and becoming distinct units. And by 135 AD, when the Jews did that Bar Kokhba rebellion, Christians said, nope, we're done with you Jews. And this is when the Gentile Christians began to outnumber it and the pagan world as a whole Jews became the evil bad guys for centuries to come, up until the medieval period and, you know, ending hopefully with the Holocaust and that sort of thing. But yeah, you, you know the history of, of the Jews during the diaspora. But the, the point here is that because of the persecution and the suspicion that Christians and pagans or Gentiles in general had towards Jews after the Bar Kokhba Rebellion... This speaks volumes as to the origin of this tradition having to be earlier than that because, and in fact, I think it does date to the first century because even in the early second century and late first century, I think after that second temple period, um, there was a division among Jews. This, this kind of, there's a hint here that there's some kind of early oral tradition that dates back to the first century. When Jews were still debating, you know, it, okay, is it okay to heal in Jesus' name? Was he a Jew or not? And there is some level of confusion here. Um, and that's why ra a rabbi is going to Jesus to prove, hey, no, he's good. The other rabbi is saying, no, no, he's a fake. You, you're going to be punished. Don't go to him for healing and stuff like that. Additionally, in terms of the date, uh, this persecution went the opposite way as well. After 70 AD, we know that a lot of Christians didn't want to engage in violence against the Romans. They didn't help out during the first revolt that ended in the Second Temple being destroyed. And so there was a period there where Jewish Christians were being persecuted by the Jews, um, you know, for being disloyal and that sort of thing. It seems to be foreign in this context, or at the very least seems to be an issue of controversy during the time this tradition in the, and this was a tradition in the Tosefta, which was created, written down 70 to 200 AD. But remember, that just means the supplement or additional. In, in addition to the Mishnah, there was also this early Tosefta. Okay, so what do I make of this then? So in the first place, we, we do have a couple of interesting arguments. It, I do think it's early. Uh, it's got to be early second century or more likely late first century, I would, I think. 
we don't really know. We don't have a way to pinpoint, well, does this actually reflect oral tradition in the time of Jesus? But I would say it is probably first century tradition. I don't know when in the first century. It could be during the late first century or sometime like that. But we just have no way of proving, let alone proving that there were reliable reliable oral sources, that this was tradition fitting Jesus. It, it is plausible um, in that it's independent Jewish tradition, as represented by the fact that they don't call him Jesus of Nazareth by the place, but they're, you know, they're giving uh, the genealogical thing. If it's associated with Jesus, if Panthera was Jesus' grandpa, grandpa's name, and they're preserving this, this reflects Jewish practice and that sort of thing. So that would be an, a possible argument in favor of it. But yeah, um, I'm going to claim, and finally, there's plausibility as well to this because it does admit, look, Jesus practiced sorcery. This agrees with other Beretha from the Mishnah and stuff like that. It agrees with the New Testament narratives, which described our Jewish response to Jesus's healing activity and how they interacted with it. All in all, I just think that the, there's not enough to establish. There's definitely a reliable. This is based on a Jewish independent oral tradition that dates back to the time of Jesus and or in the near vicinity and thereby proves that there was a minimal historical Jesus. Unlike with the unreliable passages, there aren't really solid arguments against it, proving that they're probably unreliable. So that's a step up for this passage. And there are a couple of reasons that possibly speak to its um, reliability in that it's got to be early 2nd century or earlier. It seems to reflect Jewish independent tradition rather than representing from Jews interacting with Christians and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately, there's nothing we can really prove this. So I'm agnostic. I'm going to remain 50-50. I'm not going to include this uh, passage in the Tosetta as um, proof for a minimal historical Jesus uh, on a balance of probabilities. All right, so let's move on to our next text then. Okay, so the next text is known as, uh, referring to Jacob, disciple of Jesus, as Minuth. So here's what the text actually says. Our teachers have taught when Rabbi Elizer the Great was arrested for Minuth, they brought him to the tribunal for judgment. The procurator said to him, does an old man like you busy himself with such idle matters? Rabbi Elizer answered, I trust him that judges me. So the procurator thought that he spoke of him, whereas he spoke of his heavenly father. The procurator said to him, Since you trust in me, you are dismissus, or acquitted. When he returned home, his disciples came in to console him, but he f would not accept their consolations. Rabbi Akiba said to him, Suffer me to tell you one thing of what you taught me. Rabbi Elizer answered, Say on. And he said, Perhaps a word of Minuth came upon you and pleased you, and therefore you were arrested. And in the Tosetta version of this account, it reads, Perhaps one of the Minim had said to thee a word of Minuth, and it pleased thee. So he answered, Akiba, you have reminded me. Once I was walking along the upper market, um, and in the Tafseta it reads street. So we have multiple versions uh, here in the Mishnah and in also the Tafseta here. Once I was walking in this upper market of Sephoris and found one of the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And Jacob of Kephar Sekanya was his name. He said to me, It is written in your law, Thou shalt not bring the hire of a harlot, etc. What was to be done with it? A latrine for the high priest? But I answered nothing. He said to me, So, Jesus of Nazareth taught me. Or in the Tafseta, uses the name Yeshu ben Pantari again. For of the hire of a harlot hath she gathered them, and unto the hire of a harlot shall they return. From the place of filth they come, and unto the place of filth they shall go. And the saying pleased me, and because of this I was arrested for Manuth. And I transgressed against what is written in the law, Keep thy way far from her, that is, Manuth, and come not nigh the door of her house, that is, the evil gover civil government. So that's what the text says. It speaks directly of Rabbi Eliezer, and he's talking to Rabbi Akiba. Um, he was arrested. So all most historians say that Rabbi Eliezer was arrested in about 95 AD in the late first century. And he's recounting, after he was released, he's recounting a time when he was an eyewitness and spoke to Jesus of Nazareth himself. And Jesus taught him. And at the time, it pleased him, reflecting this early tradition when Jews and Christians got along. I mean, remember, Josephus is kind of positive about uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and they respect him up until they kill him in the 60s AD. But um, again, it's reflecting this early period when the Jews and Christians didn't have this cemented or entrenched hatred and animosity toward each other that came in later periods. So that this, again, this is definitely a first century tradition, I'm pretty sure. So this, uh, so this really provides absolute proof. We have an eyewitness testimony saying, Jesus, historical peep, uh, you must be a fool if you deny it. A lot of biblical scholars, like Do uh, jo Jewish scholar Joseph Klausner, again, he's one of our main sources here, but he fully accepts the historical objectivity of this verse, um, and he thinks it provides proof uh, of Jesus. So he says, quote unquote, in spite of M. Friedlander's various attempts to persuade us that every Talmudist worthy of the name knows that the few Talmudic passages which speak of Jesus are a late addition, and the Talmudic sources of the first century and the first quarter of the second afford not the least evidence of the existence of Jesus or Christianity, in spite of this, there can be no doubt that the words, one of the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, and thus Jesus of Nazareth taught me, Rabbi Eliezer, uh, are in the present passage, both early in date and fundamental in their bearing on the story, and their primitive character cannot be disputed on the grounds of the slight variations in the parallel passages. So again, we have multiple versions of this story in the Tosetta and in the Mishnah or the Babylonian Talmud, and they have variant readings, but they more or less align. And according to Joseph Klasner, this cements the deal, absolute proof that the minimal historical Jesus existed because this is authentic, reflecting authentic oral tradition um, during the Tanatic uh, period from an eyewitness, Rabbi Eliezer. Now, what is it that skeptics or mythicists might come back and respond to this text? Well, uh, in the first place, it has to be noted that in the quotations here, Jesus of Nazareth is in brackets, meaning those words aren't necessarily in the actual manuscript. So the skeptics would say, we don't know if you can actually say that he's talking about Jesus here at all. And uh, Jeffrey J. Lauder on infidels.org in his skeptical 
take on this thing, he says, um, look, McDowell never defends his use of the words left in the brackets, quoting that this passage is about Jesus in any way, uh, Jesus of Nazareth in any way, or even in the Tafsetta, it says Yeshu ben Pentera or Penthera. He simply, he says, look, uh, McDowell simply relies upon Joseph Klasner's obscure translation that he gives based on a 19th century manuscript and says that most scholars reject this. So one thing I will say here is uh, obviously Joseph Klasner was around in the 1920s. So he's 1922 when I'm we're quoting him as an expert. He is a little bit outdated um, or dated and that sort of thing. Doesn't mean what he says is wrong. Obviously we're relying on him a lot because he is an expert. But here's something that I would, in terms of the skeptic saying that he's just relying on a 19th century manuscript. Uh, well, no, actually he's, Dr. Rabin, Rabinovitz, maybe he was around in the 19th century or something, but the, he's getting this from the Munich manuscript, which is a 14th century. 1343 is when the Munich manuscripts, the whole Talmud uncensored that we have. So I think that this skeptic uh, is just ignorant and got, got the dates wrong. He saw that, oh, maybe, well, this the Munich manuscript was being quoted in a 19th century work and the manuscript itself is 14th century, so that might be a little bit wrong. And I, I don't want to uh, cut him up too much. That might have just been a typo or a, hate, a mistake made in haste on his part. Um, surely he would probably say the same about me. You know, when you when I was talking about the Toledoth Yeshu, that booklet, well, that's a separate booklet. That isn't part of the Talmud. You got that wrong, Dale. He, he would say, okay, great, you know, whatever. It, it's still a rabbinic literature that was made around 500 AD or something, whether it was officially part of the Talmud or not. You know, I was just talking in haste or something. So I'm going to give him the principle of charity and give him the benefit with this 19th century manuscript thing. But nonetheless, the point here, the main point of controversy here is that he's saying Jesus of Nazareth isn't mentioned in the path, the manuscript itself. And he quotes scholars like John Mayer in his book, um, The Marginal Jew. A Marginal Jew, Rethinking the Historical Jesus, which is a great book. I've taken it out from the library several times. Um, I wasn't able to take it out this time to consult specifically on these rabbinic sources, unfortunately. Um, but here's a quote that he gives in this respect. Quote, unquote, John Mayer says, to establish the reliability of this passage, Klossner must engage in a contorted argument that includes an appeal to Hegesippus's account of the martyrdom of James, something that would not inspire confidence in many scholars today. Joachim Jeremias weighs the pros and cons of the argument about authenticity and decides in the negative, rightly in my view. The saying is a polemical invention meant to make Jesus look ridiculous. Yeah, John Meyer, he's a, a great Christian uh, scholar and that sort of thing. And um, I've used him to refute the mythicists in other shows. So yeah, John, you know, John Meyer is arguing here that the Talmud contains, quote unquote, no clear or probable reference to Jesus. Even Dr. Graham Twelftree states that the Talmud is, quote unquote, of almost no value to the historian in his search for the historical Jesus. That's more of a general quote. 
So look, I was a real seeker here. Um, I wasn't able, the only sources I was able to find on this were one by a Christian apologist, Josh McDowell, who's quoting Joseph Klossner. And then on the other side, the skeptic internetinfidels.org by Jeffrey J. Lauder saying that, look, so I've been notified that there's a controversy here as to whether this passage speaks of Jesus or not. Uh, it's based on a contorted argument, according to John Mayer, who's quoted by Jeffrey J. Lauer as, as saying that it's not clear whether this passage has the words Jesus of Nazareth or in it or not. And therefore, we can't use this to prove that there's a minimal historical Jesus, given those resources alone. I would need to delve into more of the scholarship and have access to more of the resources. Right now, I just don't have the time, money, or convenience to do that. Um, and I've done the best I can with the sources I have. But just looking at these two sources, I find that it's insufficient for me to have a warranted conclusion one way or the other as to what's going on. Is this passage indeed speaking, probably speaking about Jesus of Nazareth? Um or are the skeptics correct in saying, well, no, this is Klossner's argument, which Josh McDowell's relying upon, is, isn't, um, it's, contort it's a contorted argument. It's not something that should be relied upon. I don't have the means to adjudicate on that personally. And so here's a great example of where I'm not going to make a judgment or of warrant either way. So I remain agnostic on this passage I don't know what the truth is, uh, pending further investigation when I have time to take out some of the, the books or scholars that are uh, consulted by both sides and, and read the, the primary literature for myself. So yeah, um, that's it for that passage.